We are still in the process of analyzing Israel's first king that God allowed them to have, even though they did not go about and ask for it in the right way. They had wrong motivations. Um, God allowed them to have a king anyway. They were not satisfied with really the wonderful leadership that God had given them through Samuel. Um, And God said, Samuel, don't worry about that. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So um, I I will handle it. So anyway, we are still measuring the character of King Saul, kind of in contrast to Samuel. And we've seen some things so far, although he had a good start. Now we're starting to see some things that are a little concerning. And we're going to continue, unfortunately, to see some things today as we um, continue to measure his life here and um, just meditate and think about his character and how he is handling himself as a leader. We're going to continue to do that tonight. And there's going to be some very interesting things um, to think about with, with this. Um, how the kingship operated and how the people responded and Saul in his own attitude here. Um, we don't have a long passage tonight, but some things for us that certainly going to be to think about. And anyway, so we finished, we were introduced to his son, Jonathan, and Jonathan, in contrast to King Saul, who seems to um, when he's not filled with the spirit, tends to lag in his judgment and wait and be sure that everything in his thinking is, is working out the way that it should be. He seems to be slow to move. Remember, we had this picture of him as the rebuked king by Samuel and also with the priest there who was of the cursed lineage of Eli contrasted against Jonathan and his armor bearer, who in faith said, let's just do something. God has made it clear what we need to do. Let's stop sitting around and in faith, not just arrogantly um, trying to come up with, with creative ideas to make myself look good, but let's have full faith in God. And God gave he and his armor bearer a miraculous victory, literally um, coming up out of the valley, climbing up rocks as the enemy is watching them and um the sign that jonathan gave his armor bearer was if they ask us to come up that means god has given them to us so full confidence boldly and um, the philistines waited for them to get to the top and that was the shortest wait that they had because they soon ended their lives as soon as they got to the top of that And Israel um, was encouraged, even those that had been traitors and fighting with the Philistines turned around, oh, well, this is a good opportunity to make sure nobody finds out that we're traitors. Yeah, let's go. Let's let's kill the Philistines around us. Um, And uh, God gave Israel a great victory. And that was the verse 23. In fact, it mentions that even with Jonathan's faith and what God allowed him to do, The author is clear. The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over to Beth-Avon. The battle wasn't finished yet, as we'll see here in in these next verses. The Philistines move on to some sort of hill country. And even in the midst of the Lord saving the day, we have a problem. The Lord saved Israel that day, but worked against the foolish behavior of their own king. 
And we're going to see that here, verse 24. The men of Israel, even though God had delivered them a miraculous victory, they were still distressed. They were hard-pressed, in other words, that day. Well, why is that? Why in the midst of a God-given victory would an army be hard-pressed and struggling? Um, we're about to find out here. It says, for Saul had adjured, and that has the idea of laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on not God's enemies, but mine enemies. There's a lot of echoes in what Saul does here of um, poor choices that men in the book of Judges made. And this echoes Samson, where Samson calls on the Lord to give him strength one more time so he can avenge himself of his enemies for taking out his two eyes. And God gives him that strength. And Saul here seems to be focused on the fact of what his enemies did to him rather than on what on their rejection of God. And so uh, he does this really rash statement, makes this oath. That sounds, seems to sound, at least to Saul anyway, super spiritual, but he bound his soldiers to an oath. They didn't have any um, say in the matter that they could not eat at all until Saul's enemies were vanquished, until they were completely taken care of. Well, that just doesn't sound very wise, does it? The foolishness of this oath is readily apparent. The soldiers have fought hard and they're hungry. They're famished. They've done their part. And now they can't get sustenance. They can't get nourishment. They are hard-pressed. They're in real trouble. So let's continue on here. Um, so none of the people had tasted any food after this full day of battle. You can imagine after a hard day of work and you come home and you expect dinner or, and, and sustenance that you, you understand what this is like. Well, certainly after a hard-fought battle, people needed nourishment. So verse 25, and all they of the land came to a wood. This seems to be the idea of Saul's um, forces, their armies. They came to a forest, and there was honey upon the ground. But when the people were come into the forest, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. So here we have a land flowing with milk and honey that God promised, literally. They walked through the forest. Here's this honey, literally off of the tree or wherever it's come, just enticing them, right? And they're famished. And it's, it's a really torturous to think of this. And they can't even touch it because they're afraid. Even now you get the idea that they're a little bit fearful that Saul is what we would say today, maybe a perhaps a little unhinged. And they don't know how he's going to react if they um, take advantage of this nourishment. So what God has provided for them, they can't even take advantage of because of this foolish oath. And now we start to get a better idea as it mentions Jonathan again, because remember he's back with his father's army. We kind of get a better idea of why Jonathan did not tell his dad about his plans in the first place and why he went off with his armor bearer and, and won the day. Um, he was probably afraid his father might hinder him with some sort of foolish instructions or foolish plan does seem that Saul at this point is already kind of making his mark and sometimes making unwise choices at the very least, right? This is certainly a foolish choice for him. And remember, oath-taking is a very serious thing. God and the commandments 
his commandments to his people said, you need to take oaths very seriously. If you're going to make an oath, you had better follow through on it. And there were all sorts of punishments that the Lord could bring, including and not limited to the death of that person if they went back on their oath. So this was a very serious thing that Saul had done. Um, but Jonathan, of course, did not know. He legitimately, innocently did not know of his father's foolish oath. Verse 27, Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put the end of the rod or the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb. He's hungry, too. He's been fighting more than any of the others, and he's ready for some nourishment. And he put his hand to his mouth, and it said here his, his eyes were enlightened. Remember that psalm? We went through Psalm 19, that the word of God enlightens the eyes. It's the same sort of thing here. He has nourishment. He has energy. He's revived in his spirit as the idea of his eyes became bright. He um, has the nourishment, the energy that he needs through this to continue on. So, verse 28, then one of the people said, hey, Jonathan, your dad said you can't do that. You're under a curse. Now you're, you're uh, under um, punishment or, or under, um, you're in danger of, Saul finding out and you um, being punished in some way or another. That's what they say. Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And so the people around him like, oh, you can't do that. You're going to get in trouble. But yet they still, they see him enjoying the food and they want the food as well. But Saul has put them under this, this foolish circumstance and expectation. And Jonathan then makes note of this. Okay, uh, verse, sorry, verse 29. Then said Jonathan, my father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened or have become bright because I just tasted a little of this honey. How much more, how much better if happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they had found. For had there not now been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines, the soldiers were weak because of this demonstration of Saul's of supposed hyper-religious zeal. What was Saul trying to do here with this oath? Well, we're not told for sure. We can kind of speculate. Um, and I, I just throw out a couple things here as speculation. What was he, what was going through his mind? Well, maybe he was trying to get God's attention. Maybe with Samuel not there and he had just been rebuked, he's thinking, I've got to do something big and bold, maybe like my son has done to get God's attention. So what better than to make an oath that we're not going to eat anything until God gives us a victory? Yeah, that, that sounds real spiritual. That should get God's attention. Well, if that's the case, again, we have another instance here of Saul really misunderstanding the character of God and God's laws and who God is. You just continue to get the idea that Saul really doesn't know the God of Israel very well at all to make an oath like this. Or maybe, maybe he wanted the people to think that he is impressing God with his zeal. Why would he do that? Well, maybe he was trying to make himself look spiritually mature in the eyes of the people after Samuel's chiding of his actions. Remember, Samuel, Samuel chided him publicly, and that was probably embarrassing for King Saul. So maybe this was a way to make himself look spiritual again in the eyes of the people. 
whatever the reason, I think we can all assume that, that um, Saul's character is pretty shallow. In fact, I think he's insecure in a number of ways because of this. In reality, this oath that he gave was a very unwise, damaging religious commitment that did not reflect the expectation, the expectations of God's law. God didn't expect people not to go without eating the soldiers. It's just foolishness. It's not even practically wise. There's nothing in God's law that says that people can't eat or to even say something like this. So we have a, maybe you've heard this phrase before uh, that some have said, I think it's appropriate in some circumstances, be careful of acting more religious, more spiritual than God. And Saul certainly has put something on the people that God did not expect them to follow through. And Jonathan picks this up and says, my father has troubled Israel. He has brought trouble upon Israel. Do you know the last time in God's word where things were phrased like that, by the way? It's fresh in my mind because we've been going through this in our devotions at home. So boys, do you remember the last time that a man was mentioned that had troubled Israel, brought trouble on Israel? Joshua mentioned it about Achan, right? Oh, sorry, Luke. Go ahead. Achan, very good. He said, Achan, you have troubled Israel. This is the same word that Jonathan says, my own father has troubled Israel with this foolish oath and expectation. And uh, he has not led with wisdom in common sense, but really insincere religious fervor. God aids his people through victorious miracles. We've seen that, but also through practical wisdom and, and common sense. Um, God expects us to use common sense and, and to do the things that, that uh, the basic things like drinking water and, and providing nourishment for ourselves. And when we don't um, really treat our, our bodies in the way that we should, and we're not careful with um, our, our physical health and hygiene and that sort of thing, um, we, can, we can bring trouble to ourselves. Uh, God expected his people to operate under this common sense to take care of themselves as well. And Jonathan points out, Israel's forces, we had a great victory. God gave us a great victory, but it could have been even better. If the people just, uh, God uh, let them have the spoils, they could have eaten properly, they could have been properly nourished. How much more of a victory could we have already had if my father had not made this foolish choice? And he's not being rebellious against authority here. Jonathan is represented as a man um, who uh, obeys and follows after his God, after the Lord. And it's a spiritually mature man lamenting on a wrong choice from somebody who's not very spiritually mature and not making good choices. And Jonathan laments about this. Well, let's continue on here. There's going to be consequences because of this. Verse 31, and they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and they still had to continue on with the battle, but here we go. The people were very faint, almost ready to pass out, um, ready because they had not been nourished and still fighting the battle. And when finally the enemy is vanquished, okay, this gets a little gross here, okay, so just be ready. Gross alert. And the people flew or pounced upon the spoil. Once they know, okay, oh, we've... We've met the oath. Let's eat. And they're so hungry, they took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people did eat them. Ugh. 
with the blood. And they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord and that they eat with the blood. Now, folks, some of you may enjoy a rare or medium rare steak once in a while. Um, some of my family members enjoy their stink, steak, stink, their steak a little extra pink. Me, not so much. I like uh, not well done. I like a little bit of pink, but not a lot. That's beside the point. Folks, this is not what's going on here, right? We all understand this. This is way beyond even a raw steak. This is gross. But the people are so hungry, they don't even care. And you've heard stories when people get so hungry, whether they're climbing mountains or they're um, in difficult situations, isolated from society, that people get desperate and do weird things. Well, Paul Saul has put them in this situation. So they're literally eating this, this meat raw. And Saul has to have someone bring his attention. It's almost like Saul is not even clued into what's going on. He's just, hey, we got the victory. <laughs> that oath worked really well. That's great. And somebody comes up to him and says, um, Saul, the people are eating like, you know, raw meat. And they're not supposed to do that because the law has said they're not supposed to do that. And I can almost imagine Saul looking around and saying, oh, yeah, well, that is pretty gross. And you know, I agree with God on this one. I don't think they should do that. I can almost know I'm adding a little bit to this, but I think Saul kind of has that attitude. In this instance, yeah, that's right, Lord. That's really nasty. I don't think that they should do that. A totally um, ignorant, avoiding his part in this. And so he confronts the people and he said, you have dealt treacherously. You have transgressed. This is gross, people. Let's, let's do this the right way. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say unto them, bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and sin not against the Lord and eating with the blood. So Saul um, versus the people on correct barbecuing techniques or whatever they did here, sacrificing techniques and how to correctly prepare their meat now that he's cued into what's going on. Again, it just kind of seems like Saul is not, he's more focused on himself and his own things rather than what's going on around him. He's a very self-focused individual. But he takes care of this and it says, and, and he takes care of this problem. The people now are eating in a normal way that is more healthy for them. They're getting the food that they need. And it says, and Saul built an altar unto the Lord. But interesting, the same was the first altar that he ever built unto the Lord. It has the idea here of this is the first time that he had ever built a sacrificial altar to the Lord. Now, this might be because, remember, Samuel was the one that was in charge of the spiritual side of things. Maybe this was just for this reason. But you get the idea of the whole that Saul really is kind of operating on his own wisdom and his own ideas and God in his life is, is a secondary thing, if even that, that he constantly has to be kind of pushed and focused to think about God. Uh, Saul, they're disobeying God's law. Oh, oh yeah, they are. Yeah, let's, let's, we better get, uh, now's a good time to do one of those um, altars that I've been wanting to do for so long. And they worship before God. He, he just doesn't seem to have a heart that's after God's heart, right? And this is where we're just observing here as this continues. We're looking at Saul's character. We have some real troubling things here that we're seeing. 
in his life. So then, verse 36, Saul has a great idea, a new plan to capitalize on the recent victory now that he's taken care and people have actually eaten. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil or plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. Let's pursue the remaining army all night, plunder, and let's just wipe them out. Let's finish off the Philistines once and for all. Now, God wants the people to give the people victory over their enemies, and he's promised that. And there's nothing about this plan that's, um, that's wrong or problematic, except for one thing. This seems right, actually, in the eyes of all the people. The people hear this, and it says here, they said, do whatever seemeth good unto thee. But then one of those pesky priests kind of raises his hand and said, uh, uh, Saul, um, don't you think we ought to ask God first what he thinks? Oh, yeah, that's right. Then said the priest, let us draw near hither unto God. And Saul's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's ask counsel of the Lord. Okay, shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them unto the hand of Israel? What do you think about my plan, Lord? This is what I want to do. Is it a good plan? What happens? It says here, but he, that's God, answered him not that day. He receives no answer. Why? Well, it's kind of frustrating, but we're not really told why. I have an idea. Again, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think there's something with this. This whole thing about the oath, when Saul did this, as foolish as it was, it did stir up an issue that had to be addressed. He had made an oath before God. And so until it's dealt with, until the ramifications of this are dealt with, he's... um, he, Jonathan, even though he didn't know, did not follow the oath that his father had made before God. I think that probably the Lord in his silence is saying, I'm not going to give you further direction until you deal with this problem that you came up, that, that you made, Saul, in this wrong oath. But Saul's perception is, well, if God's not answering me, then there's sin in the camp and it must be routed out. Even if it is his own son, which on a technicality, we're going to find out it is Jonathan. And this kind of, again, has um, aspects of what happened with Achan and how they had to bring everyone together and kind of narrow it down and find out who the person was that had disobeyed God. Saul is ready to do this. And so let's see here. Um, And Saul said, verse 38, draw ye near hither or come here all the chief leaders of the people, and no one see wherein this sin has been done this day. God's not answered me. Couldn't be because I made some bad choices. Must be somebody else that sinned. So let's find out who did it. Verse 39, for as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son. And I don't know that he really knows that Jonathan has done anything yet. I think this is hyperbole. He's saying, even if it were my own son, we're going to deal with this. And he, he himself would even, I would even put him to death if he has transgressed my oath that I made before God. Again, we have this whole idea of somebody trying to be zealously um, spiritual, but trying to promote himself in the midst of that, which is really an ugly thing. Um, whenever a leader finds himself um, or puts his people under an expectation that is obviously not biblical, to make himself look spiritual and to make himself look wise. 
that's a recipe for disaster, folks. And leadership does have that. Pastors sometimes have that tendency. I know situations where um, pastors have to make themselves look like, or, you know, super spiritual in the eyes of their congregation will come up with kind of wacky schemes and different things that they want the church to be a part of that really the church has no business being a part of and, and taking part in. And the people know that, but their pastor is so zealous about it that they don't want to go against them. Leadership has to be very careful with this, that their expectations for the people match God's word, right? Certainly not the case with, with Saul here. So now, now he's pursuing who sinned against his oath. And he says, for there was not a man among all the people that answered him. He called the elders, elders, come on up and let's work through this process. And nobody says a word because they know that Jonathan is the one that's going to be in trouble here. Nobody wants to see Jonathan get in trouble. And that's understandable. He really, Jonathan is their savior. God has used Jonathan to save the people this day. And nobody wants to see him get in trouble. And, but yet Saul has said, even if it's my own son, Jonathan, he's going to die. So it's strangely quiet. In the midst of all this, Saul finally gets the idea, hmm, I wonder if it is Jonathan that might be involved here. And so Saul said, verse 38, I'm 39, uh, no, 40, sorry. Then said he unto all Israel, Saul, be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. We're going to separate into two groups, myself and Jonathan on one side, and the people on the other. And the people said unto Saul, yeah, do what seemeth good unto thee. And let's hope that he doesn't find out it's Jonathan. So then there, verse 41, Saul is putting this process into play. And in this verse, we have an interesting uh, translation issue, where it seems, I believe it's the Alexandrian text or some of the modern version to actually add a little bit more information based on the manuscripts than what the King James Version has. Um, this is one of those instances where the Alexandrian text provides a little bit more information than the majority text uh, seems to have done. Actually, I, I think if I remember correctly, this is also a, a Septuagint translation issue. It goes back quite a ways. Anyway, modern translations will read like this. Therefore, Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. Now the King James just says, give a perfect lot. The idea is show which of us is innocent. Uh, both mean the same thing, okay? What is Saul doing here? He's using, and this, if you're wondering what the Urim and the Thummim is, try to say that fast five times. Um, they were two little stones that the priests carried around that helped give, um, that, that the people used to help divine or help understand what God's will was. And somehow, I don't think we should look at this like dice or something. They would just throw it up and whatever it ended up falling on. But somehow or another, these two stones called the Urim and the Thummim were used in such a way that when a question was asked and they fell a certain way or whether they lit up, we just really don't know. It meant yes from the Lord. And then it meant no. And so Saul is just saying here, Priests, let's do the Urim and the Thummim. Let's, um, uh, the King James Version here, give 
a perfect lot or show who's innocent. And Saul and Jonathan were taken and the people escaped. And what that means is that not that the people ran away, but that when the Urim and the Thummim were cast, that it was made apparent that the sin was within Saul and Jonathan and not the people. So the people are like, whew, well, that's good. But it still doesn't help Jonathan. And so they continue further. And Saul said, now cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. It was made apparent that it was Jonathan who had broken the oath. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what thou hast done. Again, uh, reminiscent of Joshua standing before Achan, um, saying, tell me what you have done. But in this case, it's the one who is right and has saved Israel that's having to answer to one who's out of sync with God's plan and God's will, the exact opposite of what happened with Joshua and Achan. All this is very interesting here. And Jonathan's told him and said, I did it. I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod, the staff that was in my hand. And lo, I must die. Or basically is saying, here I am. I will die. I idea, dad, that you would do this and make this, who would have thought that you, he didn't say it like this, but I think that probably interpretation, the idea is, I, I had no idea that you would do something this crazy or make this oath in this way. Um, people need nourishment. We've been fighting all day. I did it. I took the honey. So if I have to die, I guess I have to die. You made an oath before the Lord. Does this remind you of another situation in the book of Judges of someone who made an, a very unfortunate oath and his children paid the price? The king that was going to, person that came home was going to sacrifice his, his daughter. Yeah, Jephthah. And his daughter had the same response that Jonathan did. You know what she said? She said, do unto me as you promised that you would do to the Lord. Now, I'm getting, that's another topic, but the, the, then the question is, well, what happened? Did she die? I think there's possibility that it, there's room for thinking that she may have just remained child or childless and not able to have children and serve the Lord in an isolated place, but probably she wasn't, a, she didn't end up being sacrificed um, because of her father, her father's foolish, rash vow. And now here's Jonathan facing the exact same thing. Saul is reflecting foolish choices from past leaders. All of this doesn't look very good for him as far as us measuring his character. But Jonathan's ready because he knows that an oath is serious. And we see here again the faithfulness and the steadfastness of Jonathan before God. Whatever you need to do to obey God. So what's going to happen? Does that move Saul at all? No. Well, verse 44, and Saul answered, okay, God do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And at this point, the people intervened. And the people said unto Saul, shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. Now that's a gloss that the King James translators, the actual word means far from it. May it never be. And back when the King James translators use God forbid, that, that's what that phrase meant. It meant the same thing. So just a little bit of understanding there. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. He hath worked with the Lord, with God, or wrought or worked with God this day. So the people rescued or redeemed Jonathan. They saved their Savior, so to speak. 
They kept him from losing his life. They redeemed him. Because here's, here's their argument. They're saying, out of the two of you, it's obvious who God is with. God used your son to save us. And even in the midst of your, although they wouldn't have said it this way because they feared for their lives, it's kind of um, reflected here. Even in the midst of your foolishness, God used Jonathan, and it's obvious who God is with. God is with Jonathan, so it would be wrong for us to end his life. You can't do this. And so now the curse of the oath actually, interestingly enough, falls back on Saul because he can't follow through on his oath. And it's not really brought out here, but it's just another aspect of Saul's um, not measuring up to God's law. So what happened? Well, they saved Jonathan, then Saul went up from following or pursuing the Philistines. He just leaves off pursuing them, and the Philistines get a second chance to go home and regroup. Now, here's an interesting lesson and a, a practical aspect about Jonathan's life here is that, folks, we can serve faithfully even when we're under difficult, trying leadership, whether it's in our jobs. Hopefully, that's not your um, your perspective here at Village Chapel. <laughs> but I'm not perfect either. I'm going to make mistakes too. And God calls us to sometimes to, to serve and serve faithfully, even when we're being asked to do difficult things. When we're asked to do something that's immoral, like the people have done here, they've said, we can't do this. This is not right. Sometimes we have to make the stand. But Jonathan was willing to do whatever God wanted him to do under very difficult leadership, and he stayed faithful. And we can stay faithful, too, under difficult, trying, um, um, hard-to-work-with people. Well, let's finish up here. We have kind of a recap now at the end here, verses 47 through 52. We'll go through this quickly. It's a review of Saul's kingship, but it's rather surprising here after some of these negative aspects because it gives us a pretty positive assessment of his reign. So Saul took the king of Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and against children of Ammon and against Edom and against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. And whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed or routed them. He, God gave him victory against his enemies. He gathered a host, or he, the idea is he did valiantly and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. God was giving Saul success because he said he would do that. He would use Saul to gain victory over Israel's enemies. And so really, from the view of the people and other secular nations, Saul's reign has been a marvelous success. And that's reflected here. And then it goes into a little bit of his bio. Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan. We knew that. And Ishua and Melchishua. It's an interesting name. Jonathan's such a normal name. And these other two are like, what? what's, what's this? Who's Ishua? Well, this may be a Hebrew uh, shortening of the name Ishbosheth, which will come into our story later on, even though that's not mentioned there. Ishbosheth was a son of Saul, probably related there. And he had two daughters. The names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michael, or Actually, you know, when we think of a daughter, a girl's name as Michael, it's always a little, oh, come on, can't they think? So I think the Hebrew actually might have been here, Michelle. Michelle, right? That would be much better than Michael. 
but something like that. So, and remember her name regardless, right? Because she's going to figure back into the story. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his host, the captain of his armies was Abner. Remember that name, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. He was family. And Kish was the father of Saul. And Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was sore war or hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Why would God do that? I think he's still reminding his people that they still had to depend upon him. Yes, you have your king. Yes, he's getting victory. I'm giving him ability to gain victory, but you still need to depend upon me. So this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard battling here, hard uh, war. And then it says, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him or attached him unto him. This is conscription which is the taking of young men to fight in the army. Isn't that one of the things that Samuel said would happen when they had a king, that the young men would not have necessarily the freedom to do what they wanted to do anymore? Israel was losing its freedom of choice in national matters. And Samuel mentioned this would be one of the things that happens. One more thing here. This is a review of Saul's kingship so far. If you've, gone, if you've ever noticed the review of one's kingship, when does it normally take place in, for, in, in the books of the kings? At the end of their reign. So what does placing this royal recap, so to speak, mean for Saul's reign in the immediate future? Could this be a, a sign that things aren't going to go so well? We'll find out when we get into chapter 15. Applications here. Folks, let's be careful with attempts to look more spiritual than one really is. It can have damaging consequences. Admit where you are. Don't try to come up with some strange, wacky way of trying to make yourself more spiritual than what you really are. Confess your faults to the Lord and let the Lord mature and grow you. Insincere attempts to impress God and others reflect a wrong self-focus. When we're more focused on our own reputation than on God, um, we can do a lot of damage. And another aspect, religious zeal that has no basis in Scripture can bring about reckless, foolish actions and decisions. What did Jonathan do? He did bold. He he committed bold action with faith in God, but Saul just made rash choices to promote himself. See the difference there between the two. Another thing, seek God's help daily, not just when necessary or convenient. It only seems like Saul seeks God's help when he's reminded to. Yeah, yeah, I guess I ought to seek God's help and ask his direction. Wouldn't have thought of that on my own, but that's a good idea. Folks, we should, as God's children, I'm sure Jonathan did this, should depend, seek God's help daily, right? Let's do that as we get ready for prayer. And then God's approval finally must be more important than man's approval. Saul seems to be much more focused on man's approval and not really too concerned about God's approval. Jonathan and maybe some other men coming up soon will be more focused on God's approval and God will bless those that right focus. So as we go to prayer now, let's have that right focus in our prayer and see what God does in our own prayer lives.